Right, well, we come tonight <coughs> to the third in the series that we've started on the whole question of salvation. And I'll recap for those who may have missed uh, last week's. <coughs> Excuse me. During this series, we're asking and they're going to answer two questions and we're going to be looking at three facts. Now, the two questions that we're asking is this. Number one, why is man separated from God? And number two, how has this problem been overcome? And the three facts we're looking at are going to be these. Firstly, man can do nothing about it whatsoever. Number two, God has done everything needed to overcome the problem. And number three, He's done it through Jesus. Now that's our brief. That's what we're going to be looking at in this series. Now last time we looked at the Great Divide. And what we did is we saw the origin of sin coming into the world. And in fact we answered the first of our questions. Why is man separated from God? And we did that last time. But I'll recap alright for the sake of any who weren't here last time and also for those who were it's good always to recap now what was the great divide I said that the problem that entered mankind after sin had happened was this the nature of God the creator is that he is holiness God is holy holiness is his character all the way through now God's holiness is made up of two things his absolute righteousness, but also his absolute justice. Now, because that is God's character, and because man had sinned, the great divide happened. Now, you'll remember that we saw that this great divide took the shape of what I called four electric fences. There were four parts to this divide that came between man and God when Adam sinned. And that I said that you've got to picture them like four electric fences standing between man and God. Only they're 500 feet high. And they're charged with 10 million volts. I mean, the point is that man cannot get through them in any way at all. But it's not just that he can't get through the four electric fences. Mankind cannot get through or over or around even one of them. Not even one of them, and yet there are four. Now then, I'll go over what they were. The first one was this, as a result of sin, mankind came into slavery to sin. And because he's a slave to sin, there is no way that he can get free of it, of the sin nature. The second fence was this, that God's absolute righteousness means that sinful men and women cannot have fellowship with him. There's too much of a character difference. So there's the second one, personal sins. The third one is this. God's absolute justice demands that the penalty of sin, which is death and separation from him, be paid. God's justice demands that. God can't overlook anything. His justice demands that the penalty of sin be paid. And then fourthly, we saw that when God created human beings, he made them of a body and a spirit, which together 
becomes a living soul. You are a soul. Now, we receive from God through our spirit. If you think about it, I can relate to the outside world physically through my body. I can relate to other people around me as a soul. I am an individual being. I can relate to individual beings around me. I can mix, be a social creature. But the only way we can have fellowship with God is through our spirits. Now, we saw that the moment that Adam sinned, his spirit died. The moment Eve sinned, her spirit died. And that that dead spirit is passed on through the Father. So then, everyone is born with a dead spirit. Now, the only approach to God is through a spirit, which is functioning, you see. And yet, we are born, every man, woman, and child is born with a dead, unfunctioning spirit. Now, there's the fourth electric fence. And you can see that each one is absolutely insuperable by man. Now, we're going to be moving on in the rest of the series to see how each fence was demolished by Jesus on the cross. But before we go into that, before we start looking at how salvation works, tonight we've got to see why it is that Jesus was the only one who could do the work of salvation. So tonight, the question that we're going to be answering is not what is salvation, but quite literally, who is salvation? Because the important thing about salvation isn't what was accomplished, it was who was accomplished it. Everything depends absolutely on this. Now, therefore, I've called tonight's talk the rescuer. All right. Now, I very deliberately haven't called it the saviour. I could have done, but I decided not to. And the reason I decided not to is because saviour is jargon. All right, It's one of our religious words. And a lot of our religious words, they need very careful explaining. Because we use them so much, we forget in actual fact what they mean. Now then, saviour, the word saviour means a rescuer. Isn't it funny that rescuer sounds somehow more unchristian than saviour? Can you see the trouble with jargon? The word saviour means rescuer. Uh, the actual Greek word for salvation is soteria. Do you remember when we did the first study and we're looking at the word of God, I said that the Bible was soteriological. Its main subject was that of salvation. Well, that's where it comes from, soteria, all right, the Greek verb. Now, what it means is to rescue or to deliver or to save. Because remember, if a ship gets in trouble and the lifeguard has to go out to it, what is the lifeguard going out to that ship in trouble to do? To save them. SOS, save our souls. You see, salvation is simply to rescue. That's what salvation is. So tonight we're going to look at the rescuer. And we're going to see that Jesus is the only one who was qualified to be the rescuer of the world. And that's what we're going to see tonight. Now turn with me to Job. And I've often said it, the book of Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible. It was probably the first part of the Old Testament that was ever written. And if you find chapter 9, we've got to look at some verses. Job chapter 9. First of all, I'm going to read verse 1 to 3. Then Job answered, Truly, I know that it is so, but how can a man be just before God? 
Alright. Or put it another way, how can a man be saved? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. Move down to verse 11. Lo, he passes me by, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Can you see Job's problem here? God the Father is invisible. Can you see? He's saying, how on earth can, how can I relate to God? I mean, how is it that I can be right with God? I mean, for a start, he's invisible. He's everything that I'm not. And then move on to verse 32, and this is what we really need. Job says this, For he, speaking of God, For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no umpire between us who might lay his hand upon us both. Now what Job is saying, he says, look, if I'm to have any chance of being right with God, if I'm to have any chance of a relationship between me and God, then he says, I've got to have an umpire between us who can lay his hand on both of us. I think in, in the uh, King James and that it says daysman, which is a very old, old word, but nevertheless umpire in the RSV. He says that is what we need. Now then, an umpire. The Hebrew word here is your car, alright? Not, not your key for all you budding truck drivers, it, it's, it's your car, okay? Now then, your car, what it means in the Hebrew is a justifier. Or, and I'm giving you different facets of the meaning of this word, or an arguer of the case, or a judge. Can you, can you see what I'm, I'm getting at? Literally, one who reasons together. Alright? Now, this is what Job says. He says, I need an umpire. I need a justifier. I need an arguer of my cause. I need a judge. I need someone who can allow God and I to reason together. Now notice that Job says, this umpire might lay his hand upon us both. Now remember, in the Old Testament, what does the laying on of hands mean? It means it in the New Testament as well. It means identification. For instance, with the sin sacrifice in the Old Testament system, and we'll be seeing a bit of this in later studies, like the guy who needed his sin to be atoned for, he kind of came along with the sacrifice, all right, the animal that was to be killed, he laid hands on it. The idea being that he was identifying his sin with that animal. So he was laying his sin on that animal. He then killed it to show that a sacrifice for sin had been made. So, laying on of hands means identification, complete identification with, alright? Now then, that means, in order to have an umpire who can lay his hand on Job, and who can also lay his hand on God, it means that this umpire must, at the same time, be God and be man. Now remember what I said just now when I was talking about this word umpire, that I said it's one who reasons together. Now bearing that in mind, turn to Isaiah chapter 1, and I'm going to show you this exact same Hebrew word used again, your call. And it's in Isaiah 1 verse 18. And we have this. If at any point, we're going to be reading a lot of scriptures, if I get there before you, 
don't worry, you can just listen because I'll read it out, alright? That might save a bit of time. Anyway, Isaiah 1, 18, and we're looking for this word that's translated in Job as umpire. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Now that word, reason together, is the same one. Your car. Now then, can you see what's happening here? Job says that's what we need. This umpire, this ability for God and man to reason together. And we're going on to see now that God had already said, and repeats here in Isaiah, God says, if that's what you need, then that is exactly what you're going to have. The umpire, the one who enables you to reason together, the one who lays his hand on both God and man, is going to be made available to you. Now then, back to Genesis 3, to see where God originally promised this umpire. Genesis 3. And turn to verse 14. We're back now, just after the fall. Adam and Eve have sinned. They've got out of fellowship with God. <coughs> and then we'll read verse 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all cattle and above all wild animals. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now verse 14, alright, here judgment is pronounced on the sin that has come into the universe. But who is pronouncing this judgment? Do you remember our last study? The Lord God is pronouncing this judgment. Jehovah Elohim. Now who did we discover Jehovah Elohim to be? It was Jesus. The second person of the Trinity in his pre-existence. His eternal pre-existence. Therefore, it is Jesus who is here pronouncing judgment on sin. Jesus is the judge upon sin in the universe. Turn with me to 2 Timothy, and we'll establish this. 2 Timothy, chapter 4, and verse 1, when Paul writes this, I charge you... In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Now can you see, Jesus is the one who judges the living and the dead. Go back into the Acts of the Apostles. We'll see a bit of the preaching of the early church. Chapter 10 and verse 42. Um, chapter 10, 42. And he commanded us, this is Peter preaching, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, and he's speaking about Jesus, that he, Jesus, 
is the one ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And go back into John chapter 5 and let's see Jesus actually saying this of himself. John 5 and verse 22. And this is Jesus speaking. The Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. Now can you see that in Genesis we have Jesus pronouncing judgment on sin in the New Testament we have it clearly stated that it's Jesus who is the judge and not the Father alright now then what this means is this and it's terrific the judge of sin in the universe is the same person who is going to rescue the world from that judgment now can you see how important that is the judge of the universe is going to be the one who provides rescue from that very judgment. In the Old Testament, one of the cries of the saints to God was this, Lord, in anger, remember mercy. And this is what we're going to be seeing throughout the story of salvation. The way that God's mercy, his grace, is always there to rescue the very people who have been condemned because of sin. A little story I heard once will help us illustrate it as far as it goes at this point. And there was a judge in a law court, and he was a judge, and this bloke came in who committed an offence, and he was found guilty, etc., etc. Now, this particular offence was one that it didn't mean going to prison, but it was a fine, all right, a, a, a big fine. And so the judge found him guilty and passed sentence, and the sentence was this big fine. Um, and of course, if you're fined in the court, if you can't pay it, you have to go to jail instead, you see. Now what happened was that the judge pronounced the sentence, named the fine. But this judge also knew full well that this bloke couldn't possibly pay the fine, and that he'd have to go to jail. So after he passed sentence, the judge rose, he took off his wig, and he took off his gown, he walked out into his little office at the back of the court. He walked round the front, came in the court in the public entrance in his ordinary civvies clothes, and he offered to pay the fine. And therefore the bloke was free. All that bloke had to do was accept that this bloke was going to pay the fine on his behalf. Now this is what we're going to be seeing all the way through. Now let's move on back in Genesis 3 to verse 15. And in verse 15 we have the first statement of the gospel in the Bible. When the Lord is speaking to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now then, here, what is happening is a proclamation, a promise is being made of one who would come into the world to undo everything that was done through Satan leading Adam and Eve into sin. Alright? So here is the promise that someone is going to come to undo everything that the fall had done. Now what we need to do is to understand here the two groups of people. We've got to understand, first of all, that the Lord is saying that he will put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And we need to know who these people are. 
First of all, who are Satan's seed? Who are the seed of the serpent? Turn to John's Gospel, chapter 8. And verse 44. And this is Jesus speaking to the Jews. And he says this. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Alright, so here is Jesus speaking and saying you are of your father the devil. Go to John's epistle. 1 John. chapter 3 and verse 8 when we read this he who commits sin is of the devil for the devil has sinned from the beginning and then lastly Matthew chapter 13 and verse 38 this is a parable Verse 38, it's the parable of the wheat and the tares. And Jesus says this, The field is the world, and the good seed means the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. Now, putting that together, we quite simply have this. The seed of the serpent are unbelievers. Unbelievers are children of the devil. Now this shouldn't surprise us because the Bible says that Satan is the God of this world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. In their case, the God of this world, alright, there you have it, Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. And if you go to Luke chapter 4, something very interesting here. Luke chapter 4. And this is the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, starting with verse 5. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now notice, when Satan says, Jesus, this whole world belongs to me, and I can give it to you, Jesus didn't dispute that, because it was true. Satan is the God of this world, and unbelievers in this world are the children of Satan. Now, this gives us a little bit of a sidelight on the lake of fire. We shall be looking at more detail at the lake of fire in later studies. But if you turn to Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41, we have 
the story about at the second coming when there is the judgment of all the human beings alive on the earth at the second coming and they're divided into two groups the believers and the unbelievers now in verse 41 listen to what to what Jesus will say to the unbelievers then he will say to those at his left hand depart from me you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now can you see, the lake of fire was prepared not for men and women, it was prepared as a place of punishment for the devil and the demons. But the final judgment will mean that men and women who refuse to be saved will also end up in the lake of fire because of their complicity with Satan. The lake of fire was to punish the devil and the evil spirits. But because men and women are in complicity with the devil, they share the judgment that is going to come on the devil. And then still in Matthew, flip back into chapter 16. And verse 23. Now this is where poor old Peter gets a little bit of an earwigging from the Lord. We all need it sometimes, and, and Peter gets his here. And you remember that Jesus is saying, I've got to go and die on the cross, and, and Peter steps in, he says, no, Lord, we, we won't let this happen. Now listen to what he says. And, but Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. Now can you see that the thoughts of men and Satan are completely identified? Jesus says to Peter, sorry, he speaks to the devil in Peter because Satan has spoken through Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance. You are not on the side of God, but of men. Can you see that the way that unbelievers are totally identified with Satan? So therefore, we have Satan's seed, all right? The seed of the serpent are unbelievers throughout history. Right. Back to Genesis 3, so who then are the seed of the woman? Remember, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. The serpent's seed are unbelievers, but who is the seed of the woman? Well, the answer is this. Of course, it's Jesus. Jesus is the seed of the woman. Notice that it's not here speaking about the seed of man. It's the seed of the woman. We're going to see that this is Jesus. Now then, back to the great divide. All right, back to the problem, these fences. We've seen that sin and death is passed on through Adam. It originated when Adam sinned. And it has been passed on through the father, through the male, ever since. So that you and I inherited a sinful nature and we inherited spiritual death when we were born from our father. Therefore, if there is to be a rescuer, there are certain things that must be different about the rescuer than are true of us. Firstly, the problem, the first electric fence, is that we, humankind, are in slavery to sin. Slavery to the sin nature. Now, in order to buy a slave's freedom, the buyer or the purchaser must be a free man. 
So can you see that if we are to be bought out of the slave market of sin and the first set fence dealt with, can you see it's got to be by someone who is not a slave but a free man? It's got to be by someone who doesn't have a sin nature. Also, this one, this seed of the woman who was to come, had to be inherently righteous in order to have fellowship with God the Father. He had to have absolute inherent righteousness of his own in order to be having fellowship with God the Father. And then thirdly, in order to be the sacrifice to pay the penalty, to pay the price for the penalty of sin, he had to be totally sinless and innocent and without any personal sin whatsoever. And then fourthly, and can you see how the one who was to come had to be different to us in all these respects and yet still a man? And the fourth difference was this, he had to have a human spirit that was alive and functioning. Because if you haven't got a human spirit that's alive and functioning, you can't have fellowship with God. Remember, our human spirits are dead. We're born with a dead spirit. So then, can you see the problem, and can you see why whoever this person is who is to come has got to be a very specific type of person? He's got to be a man, but he's got to be different from us in certain respects. Now, when we put all this together, all right, we're talking about the promise of someone who is going to come to undo everything that was done at the fall. What have we got? Let's put it all together, okay. He had to be actually God, and at the same time, actually a man, all right? Now, because he had to actually be a man, he had to have a human birth. But because he's got to be God as well, it means that he's got to have both divine and human parentage. His parents have got to be human and divine. But he can't have a human father. Because if he has a human father, he'd inherit a sin nature and get a dead spirit. You see? And would be the seed of the serpent. So therefore, we conclude from this. His father had to be divine, but his mother had to be human. What is required for the entrance into the world of the one who was to come, if he's to fulfill all these criteria? It's this, a virgin birth. That's the only thing that could do. It must be a virgin birth. And indeed, Jesus was the only child who was born older than his mother, you see. Because what we're saying is his parentage has to be both divine and human, because he's got to be God, and he's got to be man. But his divine parentage has got to be on the father's side, because he can't get a human father, because that's how sin is passed on in the human race. So therefore... He has to have a divine father, and he has to have a human mother. He has to be, quite literally, the son of God. Now what this means is this, that when Jesus was born in the virgin birth, and we'll see a little bit about this in just a moment, it means that Jesus was born with a human body. 
but minus a sin nature because as we'll see the sin nature dwells in the body so Jesus was born with a perfectly ordinary human body but minus the sin nature because he didn't have a human father he was born a perfectly ordinary human soul Jesus was a perfectly ordinary human being and he was born with a functioning alive human spirit so he could have fellowship with God the Father now can you see Jesus because he fulfilled all these criteria it was no problem Jesus was the one who was to come now there's a great tendency and you often hear me say this for Christians to play around with Christian doctrine and there are certain things they home in on they say well, it doesn't really matter if you don't actually believe that literally and sadly one of the things that some people home in on is the virgin birth and they say you don't have to believe literally in the virgin birth now can you see from what I've said you cannot do without the virgin birth if there was no virgin birth there cannot be any salvation because the only way that anyone could be qualified to be the rescuer had to be his entrance into the world through a virgin birth and he had to be God himself as well as man no virgin birth no salvation now then you can be a genuine Christian and not believe in the virgin birth of course you can but that makes you a silly Christian because you're being intellectually inconsistent and who wants to be a silly Christian God is not intellectually inconsistent and we mustn't be either let's actually have a look at the virgin birth let's see it first of all prophesied in the Old Testament elsewhere I mean we have a prophecy of it here in Genesis we've already seen it but let's have a look at another one if you go back to Isaiah we've seen one or two things from him and Isaiah chapter 7 I'm going to bung one in for the critics here as well. Right, Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, when we read this. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a young woman, or a virgin, shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now then, in some of your versions it will have virgin. In my version, and perhaps some of yours, it will have young woman and the reason is this here Isaiah is prophesying I believe of a virgin birth but and here's where the critics step in they will point out that the Hebrew word here Omar can mean a virgin but it can also simply mean a young woman it doesn't exclusively mean virgin it can quite happily mean a young woman alright so which is it? Is there some doubt here in the prophecy of Isaiah? Well, fortunately not, because in Matthew 1, verse 23, this prophecy is quoted in the New Testament. And when it's quoted, it's translated by the word, Greek word parthenos, which only means virgin. It means virgin and nothing else. So can you see, when the New Testament writes this prophecy in the Greek whereas in the Hebrew there can be some vague doubt as to whether it means virgin or young woman when it's written under the inspiration of God in the, he in the Greek the word used parthenos means virgin 
all right and it is definitely virgin not young woman it means quite specifically a virgin birth it was prophesied in the old testament and it happened when mary gave birth to joseph uh, to jesus let's see it in the new testament go with me to galatians 4 it's quite interesting from this point on as you read through the new testament keep your eye open for the virgin birth because obviously we have the very blatant stories of it in the Christmas narratives. But keep your eyes open for the virgin birth. It pops up everywhere. I'll just show you one example of it. Galatians and chapter 4 and verse 4. Now listen to this. But when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of woman. Now you're as aware as I am, how much the Hebrew were into their men, alright? I mean, the women didn't really even appear in the genealogies very consistently, did they? Can you see? But here, Paul says that Jesus, born of woman, it's emphasising that his birth was nothing to do whatsoever with Joseph. It was purely between God and, Ma uh, and, God and Mary. Can you see that the virgin birth is in this statement here? Born of woman. It's all over the place keep your eyes open for it, it's quite interesting. Now then back to Genesis, because we've seen this thing about that there's going to be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And we've seen that the seed of the serpent are unbelievers throughout history, and the seed of the woman is Jesus. Now then, in verse 15, let's see what is actually going to happen directly between <coughs> the seed of the woman and Satan himself. Now then, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So here, we've got a promise that this person is going to come in the virgin birth, and that this person will bruise Satan's head, but that Satan, as the serpent, would bruise his heel. Now, what does it, what's it talking about here? First of all, let's take the fact that the serpent is going to bruise Jesus' heel. He's going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. What does this mean? Well, think of it like this. Satan has manifested himself in the Garden of Eden through a snake, through a serpent, all right? Now then, a snake injects its poison into someone, usually at ground level, all right? Can you see that? You're, you're probably going to get bitten in the foot or the lower leg, because that's how a snake passes on its venom. It poisons you, it injects the poison in. Now what we're going to see is that the poison of sin and death is going to be injected into Jesus by the devil. Now turn with me to Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Alright? An interesting story in chapter 21. And we'll start reading from verse 5. Now this is kind of going through the wilderness. Numbers 21.5 And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. That was the manna that God sent them. <coughs> Listen to this. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. 
And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Now listen to this, they're being attacked by fiery serpents. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit any man, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Bear that in mind, go to John chapter 3. Let's see something that Jesus says to Nicodemus. Start at verse 14. This is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, can you see what's happening here? In the Old Testament, we have this story of that the people sin against God and the judgment comes in the form of these fiery serpents who are biting them and killing them, poisoning them, all right? Now, they cry out to the Lord for his mercy. They repent. Now, the way that God provides deliverance or rescue in that situation is by Moses making a, a statue of one of these serpents. And when the people look up at that statue that bronze serpent on the end of the pole, they're healed of the poison or of the judgment that has come upon them. And then Jesus, using that story, then goes on to say, in exactly the same way, I am going to be lifted up. But what's the difference? When Jesus was being lifted up on the cross, who was there? The beautiful Son of God. But when Moses lifted the pole what was on the pole? The serpent, the very emblem of the devil. Now then, can you see that whereas when Jesus died on the cross, he was the beautiful son of God, I'm going to show you now that he also, in a very real sense, became the serpent. Because not became Satan himself, but what we're going to see is that on the cross, Jesus actually became the sin and the evil that was originated by Satan in the Garden of Eden. Now, can you see this thing about that the serpent will bruise Jesus' heel? Because a snake injects you with its venom and then the venom fills you up. It travels through your body and eventually kills you. Alright. Now, bear that in mind. On the cross, Jesus is going to become the very sin and evil that Satan brought into the world. Now then, bearing that in mind, go back to Genesis 3. And let's see the other part of this prophecy. Because we've seen that the serpent was going to bruise his heel. In interestingly enough, this, this word in, in the Hebrew that's being translated bruised here, it can mean various things, but one of the things it can mean is snap at. And quite literally, a snake will snap at you, doesn't he? He bites you, alright. It can also mean to crush or to break, okay? To bruise, crush or break, the same kind of thing. So we've seen that the, that the serpent will bruise or snap at 
Jesus is healed and what Jesus will fill up with the poison and become the very sin he came to deal with. But we're going to see now that in the process that Jesus would bruise or crush or break Satan's head. Now can you see the snake attacks the man's heel but he attacks the man Yeah, that assuming the man can survive the poison, can you see that the snake is incredibly um, at risk himself? Because if a man treads on a snake's head, the snake has had it. So therefore, we have this, this word here, that the, that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Now then, what we're going to see is that in the very act of Satan filling Jesus with his poison on the cross... We're going to see that it was in that very act that Jesus actually defeated Satan once and for all. You see, we're talking about a single action here. We're not talking that the serpent bites the man and then later on the man gets his own back and stamps on the snake's head. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about that in the very act of the serpent injecting his venom, into the heel of the seed of the woman. It was in the very act of doing it that the serpent himself was destroyed. You see, the thing was this. It was when Jesus became sin on the cross that salvation was accomplished. This is the whole point. This is what we're going to see in the rest of the course. Salvation happened. Salvation was won at the point when Jesus became sin on the cross. Let's actually see this. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And this is a verse we'll be coming back to reasonably frequently during this course. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. For our sake he, that is the Father, made him, that is Jesus, right? for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now can you see, it was in Jesus being made sin that our salvation could come about. Now can you see, it's when Jesus was made sin that the serpent bruised his heel. Can you see, injected him with the poison, in that attempt to destroy him, once and for all. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2, bearing this in mind, let's see how Peter puts exactly the same thing. 1 Peter 2 and verse 24. Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now can you see, Jesus bore our sins in his body. Can you see, not our sin, but not just ours, the sin of the whole world. Everything that sin is, throughout the universe, throughout history, was concentrated in the body of Jesus. Alright? So here we have it, that Jesus literally became sin on the cross. But it was the moment that that happened that salvation was made available to us and anyone else who wanted it. So can you see that as the serpent bruises the heel of the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman crushes 
the serpent's head. You see, what we're seeing is this. Jesus deals with the problem by becoming it. Alright? Jesus deals with the problem by becoming it. The problem was twofold. The problem was with man. So the second person of the Trinity, Trinity becomes a man. The other aspect of the problem was sin. So Jesus becomes sin for our sake. So what have we got here? From the very outset, the whole of Old Testament history, alright, was Satan trying to destroy Israel to prevent the Messiah coming. Alright? That, that, that sums up Old Testament history. But once Jesus was born, it was too late. So, from history entered a different phase. From the moment that Jesus was born, alright, because Satan knew full well that here the seed of the woman has arrived on the earth. From the very outset, Satan tries to kill Jesus. And it started immediately. Who did it start with? Do you remember Herod and the babies? Killing all the babies. Now, what was that? That was Satan moving through Herod to try and kill Jesus when he was still a baby. Now, these attempts to kill Jesus went on throughout his life. Do you remember in his ministry, uh, when the first time he went and preached at home, all right, he started his ministry, and he went back to Nazareth, plonked himself down in the synagogue and preached his first home-ground sermon. And do you remember what they did? They grabbed him, and they dragged him up the top of a cliff to throw him off. You see? Now, what was that? It was Satan trying to kill Jesus, you see. But, because it wasn't Jesus' time, he slipped through his hand. And it's amazing, the number of times you read of this, that people go to kill Jesus, and he slips through their... You see? Because his time hadn't come. So, all the time, the whole of the life of Jesus has Satan desperately trying to kill him. All right. Well, after 33 years of an awful lot of hard work, and doubtless not a little bit of sweating... Satan eventually manages to do what he's been trying to do all along. After 33 long years of abortive attempts, Satan finally manages to kill Jesus through a kind of a crazed mob of Jews plus the total lack of integrity of a Roman governor. And at last, after all his hard work, Satan does what he set out to do. He manages to kill Jesus. And here's the stroke of genius. It was when Satan killed Jesus that the lid went on his own coffin. Now that is the stroke of genius. And what it means is this. God was using even Satan to accomplish salvation. Now this is the sovereignty of God, isn't it? This is the picture that Satan may well be the God of this world, but it doesn't change the fact that Jesus is Lord of the universe, and that God is absolutely all-powerful in regards to everything that he's able to do. So can you see Satan's attempts to, to sort of bruise the heel of the woman's seed, to kill him, it's the very act of killing him that the snake, the serpent, got his head crushed and that Satan was defeated once and for all. So therefore, what we've seen today is we've seen the qualifications of the one who was to come. And we've seen how only Jesus fits the bill. Alright? We've seen that he had to be, one, the Son of God had to be divine. 
we've seen that he had to be the son of Mary because he had to be human all right but he had to be without a sin nature and without personal sin and with a living human spirit and in order for that to be true of him it meant that he couldn't have had a human father and therefore it meant a virgin birth so when Jesus was born what type of man was he then I mean this big debate goes on could Jesus have sinned I mean if Jesus was sinless he couldn't have sinned could he rubbish of course Jesus could have sinned the beautiful thing about Jesus is that he didn't because it wasn't that Jesus was incapable of sin the Bible tells us he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sinning. So it was quite possible for Jesus to sin. What was Jesus' status as a human being? I'll tell you, Jesus was in exactly the same state as Adam and Eve were before Adam and Eve fell. Can you see that? Because Adam and Eve, alright, their spirits were alive, they didn't have a sinful nature, they were sinless, okay? And yet they still fell into sin. Now Jesus was in that condition, he was in the condition of unfallen human man, but it would have been as easy for him to fall into sin as it would have been for Adam and Eve, and indeed, what happened with Adam and Eve? First chance they got, they sinned. Whereas Jesus, that whole life, and look at the pressure on him to sin from the devil, and yet he never did. So that was the status of Jesus. He was a perfectly ordinary man in the same human state that Adam was in before Adam sinned. So then, what we have here is that salvation appears. We see now, we have the picture that we need, the understanding of the rescuer, and why only Jesus could possibly have been the rescuer. Now next time, having looked at who salvation is, because salvation is Jesus, Next time we move on and we start to look at how, on the cross, Jesus demolished each one of these fences in turn. And we're going to do one study on each fence and see how it was demolished. But, just before I end, let me raise a question and show you something that is interesting. Because let's ask the question, given that salvation was revealed right at the start, who were the first people to get saved. Have you ever wondered that? Who the first converts in history were? Yeah? Well, I'll show you. It was Adam and Eve. And this is absolutely lovely. Go back to Genesis. As I think it's great to know that Adam and Eve, and you'll remember that I told you that the tree on the garden, that it wasn't an apple, it was a fruit, but in any case it was the pear underneath who caused all the trouble. I think it's lovely to know that that pear, Adam and Eve, very soon after the tragedy of their sin and bringing sin into the world that very soon after that they got converted and they started to follow the Lord let me show how it is that we know this there are two things that show us this Genesis chapter 3 verse 21 alright now you remember this and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them now, you remember what happened, right? We went over this last time. They fell into sin. They realized they were naked, and that went the old fig leaves, all right? But when confronted with the Lord, they realized that their fig leaves aren't any good at all because they run away and hide, 
because they realise they're naked. And we saw how religion is man's attempt to cover his own sin problem. And that it's fine until you're confronted with the glory of God. When you meet God, you instinctively know that your attempts are no good whatsoever. The fig leaves were useless. Alright. So then, here they are in this realisation that they're naked. And we have here, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. You see, what happens is this. Jesus explains to them, and remember, Jehovah Elohim, the Lord, this is Jesus in his pre-existence, you see. That he explains to them all about the problem of their sin. In fact, Jesus witnesses to them. I'm telling you that the first two converts were Adam and Eve. Do you know who the first evangelist was? It was Jesus. Who started personal witnessing? It was Jesus and he started it here, you see, because he's chatting over the problem of sin with Adam and Eve. And he explains it all to them. And he's telling them that they couldn't deal with the problem of their sin in any way at all, alright? But he explains to them also that whereas they can't do anything about their sin problem, that he could do something about their sin problem. Now what Jesus does is he kills an animal and he offers them the skins. And what Jesus starts to show them is that through the shedding of innocent blood, through the sacrifice of an innocent animal, that that could somehow cover the sin of the guilty, alright? Now here's the important point. Adam and Eve accepted the skins that Jesus gave them. Can you see that? They threw their fig leaves away. They accepted the covering that Jesus gave them. And that covering was only made available through the shedding of innocent blood. Can you see? Adam and Eve are receiving for themselves the benefits and the merits of a sacrifice of an innocent that was made for them. They're believing on Jesus, quite literally, for salvation. Can you see that? They, they've accepted the skins, alright, they're receiving salvation, not on the basis of what they do, but only on the basis of what Jesus has done for them. And there's another way, if you go over into chapter 4 and verse 1, when we read this, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now what does that tell us, I hear you ask? Well, I'll tell you in a minute. Everything in the Old Testament, everything but everything in the Old Testament, was there to foreshadow the coming of Jesus and his death on the cross. Now, we're going to see as we go through this course, that sacrificing animals and stuff like that doesn't make a blind bit of difference about anything. Alright. But in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system was introduced to picture the one sacrifice and the only sacrifice that could do the job, the death of Jesus. But because in the Old Testament people lived before the actual death of Jesus, when they partook by faith in the sacrifices, can you see, they were believing on the one who was to come. Can you see that? So therefore, their sins were being covered by the sacrifices that they were making there and then. But only because they pictured the sacrifice of one who was to come. And in making the sacrifice, these people knew that it was God 
who was forgiving their sins. They knew it wasn't because of the sacrifice they were doing, but that that was the means of receiving from God his absolute free gift of grace. So everything in the Old Testament was to foreshadow the coming of the seed of the woman. Now, bearing that in mind, all right, Adam and Eve, all right, they had had the promise that the deliverer, the rescuer, the seed of the woman was going to come, all right? Now, back to this verse. Adam knew Eve, his wife, <coughs> she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, the problem there is that it doesn't say that in the Hebrew. It doesn't say, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. It says, or she says, I have gotten the man with the help of the Lord. Now, can you see the difference? Adam and Eve had received the promise that a man, the seed of the woman, that a man was going to come and rescue them. Now here they're saying, he's here, we've got him. They assumed, you know, I mean, there was only other one man on the earth, that was Adam. So now that there's another one, Cain, they assumed that this must be the man. They were wrong, I think they were wrong by by sort of 4,000 4, odd years. But can you see the point? They were believing on the one who was to come. They were expecting the appearance of the seed of the woman, the one who God was going to send in order to set them free. Now, can you see, quite literally, they were believing in the one who was to come. They believed in Jesus. And what is really our umbrella scripture for the whole of this course? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. So then, there are the first converts in history. And I think it's great that the two that caused the trouble also got saved. Right, next time we start looking at how electric fences get demolished by Jesus.